The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. You can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And again, a reminder that all these shows are archived on my website, JewishSacredAging.com. So we welcome you to um, a very rainy, sad, no, cloudy, quiet day here. We're going to liven things up. With our guest today, Cordelia Biddle, uh, author and historian, teacher, and we'll be right back with her right after this brief word from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first, well, our major segment here today with our guest, Cordelia Biddle. Cordelia, are you there? I am here, Richard. How are you? I'm okay. You know, it's a gloomy and rainy day here in Philadelphia. The traffic is, as usual, absolutely crazy. The people are in mourning over the Eagles lost. It's just another normal day in Philadelphia. How are you? I, I am, I'm grand because uh, I get to sit in front of my computer and live in the past. <laughs> That, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? No, no, no. I, I, actually, the, the the computer is the key to all, and the great uh, with, and with the great gods, Amazon and and Google, um, and Apple. Those three gods know all, see all, and lead us into various various places. So, uh, um, you are uh, an accomplished, famous author, historian, teacher, and if I'm not mistaken, from the material on the internet. And, and some of the material you sent me before the show, you you um, you trace your history way 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 back until uh, the beginning uh, the beginning of this city and the country. Is that correct? I do. Um, Nicholas Biddle, about whom I am now writing, um, is my ancestor, and um, he's descended from Quakers who came to New Jersey um in 1680 so yes i go all the way back so um, so, so really i mean so it's easy to i guess it's correct as saying you can you can trace your roots back to this city and this area from the 17th century correct yes that's right that's so right. so you you've written a lot we'll, we'll get into a lot of this stuff but let's get, let's get to nicholas because that's what your current project is and um He's he's a very interesting guy. Princeton University before it was Princeton University, right? That's right. And he was brilliant. He was um he graduated from Princeton at the age of 15, the youngest person ever to do so still. Um he was a gifted linguist. He was a child prodigy. Uh he was entirely different than the rest of his family, which I I find fascinating. Um his father 
fought in the Revolutionary War. His uncle was a Revolutionary War hero whose ship was blown up by the British. And, and then from then on, um, the United States Navy named a ship in his honor. But Nicholas was not that kind of, I mean, I think of, I think of this, these men as sort of action heroes. Um, Nicholas was not that person. And yet he yearned to be. And so I think there's a, there's a tension within his personality. Um, he's, he was learned in ancient Greek and Latin. He could compose witty epithets in ancient languages. Um, but he was not a man who went out and slogged through the marshes with Washington. So, so I'm 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 just been fascinated by him. Um, he became, as we know, uh, financier and uh, famously fought Andrew Jackson, who uh, wanted to end uh, a central bank and did successfully do so. Biddle thought he could defeat a sitting president. He could not. Most people can't. Um, and and I but I look at this. Um, war between them as a culture clash. And I think we're going through that right now. Um, so I think this book, when it's finished, it will take me another year, will be timely in terms of what America is, what it always has been, what we see in terms of divisions um, between sort of the what Andrew Jackson called the moneyed elite, of whom Biddle was, a member and um, and the raw um, backbone of the country, and of course the people who came to this country were rebellious by nature. Um, they were leaving oppressive regimes in Europe, and they came here to start a new world. So we have this a sort of dichotomy of personality, and uh, that's fascinating to me. To scratch below the surface in terms of the bank, and first it was the, the, the first bank of the United States, which was created by Hamilton, and then the second bank of the United States. And in between times, uh, there was great uh, furor about why we would have a, a central bank. People living in the countryside did not want it. They mistrusted it. They were really, they were accustomed to bartering. Um, and then people in the cities who were accustomed to commerce with other cities and Europe understood that they needed a, a banking situation. So that's, that's where I entered into the whole story. And, and then I've got deeper and deeper and deeper and, in fact, was at the library company yesterday doing research on 1824, which is when Andrew Jackson lost his first bid for the presidency and found wonderful things. It, reading the newspaper of the day, and I read them consecutively, and they have at the library company collections of Polson's Daily Advertiser, which was the paper to read in Philadelphia. And you then get a sense of, as you do if you were to read the Philadelphia Inquirer, what everybody is talking about in Philadelphia. So, questions. I'm just blithering. No, 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 no. The, the, the uh, we're having a little technical difficulty. I think with the sound. Are you, are you on a landline or a cell phone? 
I'm on a landline. Wow, something's clicking. So I, I will go, hopefully oh. we'll try to try to fix that, <laughs> or or it we can blame it on the weather, blame it on the rain. Okay, that that sounds fine. But we're, we're getting some interference on on the um, on the sound. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't hear it at all on my. No, no, no. We, we, it's coming through here. Um, the the so we're talking about the beginning of the the 19th century, the 1800s. First of all, do you think Nicholas Biddle will get a a Broadway show named after him? Oh boy, would that be nice! <laughs> but I I can't write rap or anything. <laughs> Save my soul. So, so let's, I don't think so. Let me talk to you a but little he, bit. Let me ask yes, you a question yes, about the because you alluded to this that one of the fascinating things about history and you're a historian in many ways is the the parallels in so many ways between what was and what is and what potentially mm-hmm. can be. And I'm reminded I I forget the philosopher who who said if, you know if we don't study history we're doomed to repeat it. The, That's right. So I think that might have been Churchill. So the the um, draw me some parallels because you alluded to this fact of the distrust of the elite, the money elite. You can scratch that out perhaps in the last couple of months and say distrust of the distrust of the money elite of Wall Street. Um, yes. What 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 was going on internally from your research in the United States of America, uh, a brand new country then? Um, and this this division that you, you you alluded to the country you know the rural versus the the city that still perhaps reflects today this mistrust of um, the urban environment versus the you know the traditional American rural values this this is you're you're finding this in in uh, the Biddle research are you not absolutely and it it's it's fascinating it goes through every year that I've been doing research, and, excuse me, um, in 1811, when the first bank, Hamilton's Bank, was up for recharter, there were so many people who mistrusted it. Um, They considered a bank kind of like the monarchy of Europe that they'd left behind. The only people who had, they, they thought, the only people who had access to that kind of power were the elite or the royals. And so there was a big fight about not rechartering the bank. And, uh, and most of that in, uh, the, in Pennsylvania came from the people in the rural parts of the country um, and rural parts of the state. Um, the Scots-Irish who really, in their deepest souls, mistrusted a central government in many ways. And um, they they had not wanted to ratify the Constitution, um, and and so this big fight came up, not over the Constitution, which was a done deal, but it came up over the bank, and they looked at Philadelphia and Baltimore and these big cities that they felt were sucking the life blood out of them, and they wanted not to have a central bank, and Biddle was young then. He was 25, and he was serving in the state legislature. And he was kind of an untried um, uh, representative. And he had been taking notes, and nobody really was paying much attention to what he was doing. And he rose to his feet and spoke for three hours. And all of the 
the wiser, older people who had kind of scoffed at him and, and left when he began to speak all flocked back to listen to him. And it's a, an extraordinary defense of why we should have a central bank. And, he, you know, he t- took them through the basics. How are you going to pay the army? What are you going to do if you need to move money from one place to another? Are you going to put gold in a wagon? Um, but he's, he spoke, as I said, for three hours from just a handful of notes, and it was quite extraordinary. He did not prevail. And so there was no central bank after that. And then we got into the War of 1812, which was at that time called the Second War of Independence. But we didn't have a bank. And how were you going to pay the soldiers? How are you going to fund um, producing more ships? How are you going to buy um, munitions? And as a result of that, after the war, um, the United States government was in terrible debt. But even then, there were people who felt very strongly that we should not be at war with anyone um, let alone England, who was all-powerful. And at that time, you have to kind of go back and think what was going on in Europe. And the Napoleonic Wars, really, um, that was one of the causes of our War of 1812, because the British needed men so badly that they were impressing our seamen taking them from American ships to serve on British ships so they could fight against Napoleon. So all of a sudden, in America, you have a whole group of people saying, um, for instance, that Jefferson, who was for the war, and Madison, who started the war, were pro-French, and so pro-Napoleon, and pro-a dictator. And uh, so they were roundly critiqued for for being even even called uh citizens of France. Uh so this this swirling mistrust was going on even then. Um if you had genteel manners and you served French food and wines, you were pro French and therefore you had gotten us into this awful awful war. What's interesting Does that and, make and sense? yeah no what's interesting is um the fact that as you're as you're outlining this uh, around the War of 1812 and and what you're describing is in, in Biddle's life leading up to that is sometimes I think people nowadays think well 200 years ago this uh, interplay or, uh, of nations and intrigue didn't exist as it is today because we're so global and yet as you're describing it again history is a great teacher. Uh, the, um, the, the three-legged stool of what was then the United States, England, and France, uh, which in many cases is still going on, um, really did play a part in the politics, the economics, and the foreign policy of the United States, even back in the beginning of the uh, 1800s, just as it is today. So again, uh, this you, you could almost imagine, I, I, I would think, in your writing and your research, Cordelia, that... Um, uh, Nicholas Biddle is sort of like a, a symbolic exemplar of a lot of the issues that we face and are dealing with right now in the United States, which is kind of fascinating yes. uh, in, in, in a way. I mean, it, that that again, history is a great teacher, 
if we just decide to study it and apply it? Well, I, I until I did this research, um, because I don't want to just follow his banking career, I want to put him d- directly in the midst of the history that surrounded him because none of us are exempt from our history. Correct. We all are. Every Everything that happens every day molds who we are and how we think. Um, and so to look at the, if you read the newspapers, as I said, of going back and reading, you know, every day, people were terrified of Napoleon in this country. They, they thought, really thought that he could just come over to New Jersey. And, um, and why not? He'd conquered all of Europe. This wouldn't, and, maybe wouldn't have been such a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, it is absolutely fascinating because every day there was a report. Now, the reports lagged, of course, by three or four months <clears throat> of what, what Napoleon was doing now. Now he was in Spain, and then what was going to happen? And right. each battle was reported who won, who lost, how many troops, and it, it's fascinating. And so in, uh, in, in this country, um, because of the War of 1812, there was a call to disband the United States, the Union of the United States. Um, there was a Hartford Convention, and uh, that actually took place just after the war was the the uh, Treaty of Ghent was signed, but they didn't know that then. And so they were going to call for the dissolution of the Union. And the states that had been pro-war were going to go their own way, and New England, which had been very much against the war, was going to go its own way. So, so what, this was, this was uh, you know, people were enraged at one another. Let me ask you a question before we want to take a, a, a brief break. Why, why don't um, maybe a, a naive question, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be the first one of mine. Why, uh, why uh, does, uh, why don't we teach this enough? Or in your experience, are we not teaching this enough to our own people? This, this real nitty gritty of the American history, historical experience. I, I don't have an answer for that, Richard. I think. The War of 1812 is sort of, people don't quite understand all the global politics around it, and it's not an easy victory for the United States, and it's it's sort of the stepchild of the Revolutionary War. We won the Revolutionary War. There were heroes that came out of it. War of 1812, not really. And uh, so, and what was it, in fact? I mean, since they, Washington was burned to the ground, the president had to flee, and he was so unpopular at that point that no one would take him in. So he fled through the night and stopped at various farmhouses on the way, and they said, you're on your own, buddy. <laughs> So we're speaking with Cordelia Biddle, author, historian, and teacher uh, on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We're going to take a little break. Um, Cordelia is going to be with us for the entire hour, and we're just going to take a little break with a message from our friends at Kendall and a little musical interlude before we go back. And we're going to move into another one of your historical um, adventures, if I can use that when we come back, uh, Cordelia, I want you to talk to us about um, Catherine Drexel, okay? 
Good. We'll good. be right. We'll be back. A message from Kendall, and I think a message from It's a Good Day for little James Taylor. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. a small time Figured they'd kidnap a rich man's son Hi, I was that was our live studio audience here in the studio here WWDB uh, congratulating James Taylor. We uh, Carol King is here with James. Uh, it's a big audience here today this morning on Boomer Generation Radio. Anyway, we are with Cordelia Biddle, author, historian, and teacher here on Boomer Generation Radio. 
WWDB AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia, streaming live on WWDBAM.com. Cordelia, Catherine Drexel, um, you wrote about her. What was the reason? What was the genesis? Why her? Well, uh, she's also a relative. Um, I am descended from uh, the, the Drexels, Anthony Drexel, um, and and he was her uncle. And Anthony Drexel started, as you know, Drexel University, where I teach. And um, I attended her canonization in in Rome, and it was it was uh, an epiphany for me. Um, I had gone there thinking, oh, this is going to be quite remarkable. But um, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the live footage of that, but it was uh, a pouring, rainy, miserable, blustery day. And we were all, every there were other saints who were being named, and we were sitting outside in St. Peter's Square. Oh, wow. Uh, and our my feet were under water, as if I'd put them in a stream. Right. There's no cover. I've been there. There's no there's no roof there. <laughs> no, there is none. And, yeah. and so everybody has an umbrella, and somebody's umbrella is dripping down my back of my neck, and my umbrella is dripping on somebody else. And it it should have been absolutely miserable, but it wasn't because everyone was so excited and. Whether you're a Roman Catholic or not, you cannot help but be moved by the expression of thousands of people's faith. And um, so here's this miserable day, and uh, Catherine Drexel's name was read out, and the fact that she was from Philadelphia, and all of a sudden, the skies cleared. I'm I'm not kidding. They the sun broke out and a huge rainbow shot across the sky. Wow. And all the poor little soggy pigeons in St. Peter's just flew up into the air in this great flutter of wings. And I thought, oh, my gosh, uh, this, is, this is a miracle happening. Maybe I should pay attention to this woman. And um, so I... I came home and I said, I, I'm going to write her story. I want to understand what was driving her, why she was a woman of such incredible wealth who decided to create schools for then the forgotten of this nation, African Americans and Native Americans, and uh, and live in poverty and live under very, very difficult circumstances and fight the Ku Klux Klan. What was her date? So it's I, a, put, let's put it in historical context. Uh, she started her. She started the schools in about eighteen, uh, eight, late eighteen nineties, mid okay. to late eighteen nineties, and then continued to build them. So um, she started Xavier University, uh, founded Xavier University in New Orleans. That was a day school to start with, and um, she had to you know, fight the fight basically city hall. So I came home thinking this is going to be fabulous. I I need to write this story. And then I realized that I was uh, not a good enough human being to write her story. And I stopped, and I thought, well, she was holy, and I'm not, and I'm never going to be. I'd like to be good, but I'm never going to be her. And so, and I felt very... 
um, un- unable to even understand her motivation because I didn't feel that I was a, a, a good enough person. I knew I could write the story. I didn't doubt my ability to put words together, but I simply didn't think that I could convey who she was because I, I didn't understand it. And then uh, after leaving it aside, I kept feeling I needed to write her story. I needed to get it out to the world because I think all of us should be helping those in need in any way that we can. So I went back to it, and at that point I realized that perhaps being an unholy person, um, I had a different perspective because I was hungering to understand how someone could change their lives so completely. She had been, as I said, an heiress. She was incredibly spoiled as a child. Um, She loved to get new clothes. She was vain. Um, She was all the things that you would expect someone who was uh, a gilded, grew up in the gilded age would be. Um, As I said, great wealth, traveled to Europe, had everything handed to her on a silver platter. So what made her? What, what, yeah, what, what, what made her? What was the tipping point for her? I think it was, I, I think it, it, it started out in her psyche. She, she really had this other side to her that was very serious and yearning for God. And I read her diaries and letters, and um, and she had kept a, a private diary that, that not even her sisters saw. She had a, two diaries, um, and it was it was entitled "The Holy Ghost Speaking to My Soul." And she tried to understand what God wanted her to do, and she started working on that when she was in her late teens. And um, and at the same time, she lived this uh, this other life, which was the life that everybody saw. And I think it was really the genocide of the Native American peoples. She would have been beside herself if she'd seen what's going on in the Dakotas now. Um, I think that was the tipping point. She started um, or paid for uh, a school to be established out on one of the uh, reservations, um, Redbud Reservation. And... It, uh, and then came the massacre of Wounded Knee, and she at that point said, no, this, this has to stop. I must do this. So she started with schools for Native Americans. She went to uh, Arizona and New Mexico. Her thrust, and I think this gets confusing for people now, was not to make them Christians. It was to educate um, because she understood that the only way they could survive in the, quote, white man's world was to have a white man's education. So so she didn't go out to convert, and I think that gets confusing for people who think, oh, she just wanted to make them leave their own, uh, their own tribal beliefs, but she didn't, and she embraced all of that. Um, but she needed them to have an education, be able to read and write. So that's what she did, and then once she started those schools, then she went down to the south, and um, the KKK posted one of her schools, meaning it's a it's a nice term, 
for um, the fact that they were going to burn it to the ground and um, maybe lynch some of the parents. I don't know. Lynching was right. a common practice. This was Beaumont, East Texas. And, um, in fact, when there was a lynching, uh, the information would go out on the radio waves um, so people could come from hundreds of miles away to attend a lynching. So the the where is where is she buried? Is she buried here in Philly? She's buried up at uh, in the crypt at the mother house, which is um, sadly going to be sold. And I think her 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 crypt then her her burial spot will be moved to the cathedral. Oh, the the the, the main cathedral in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, this this research, what did you learn about yourself? In researching um, your relative Catherine Jexler, who became a saint, what 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 did you learn about yourself? I learned that I also have a real hunger for God. I began to understand how she felt that God was at work in her life, and that God wasn't some idea out there, not a philosophical invention. That God was a real presence to her. And I began to see that in my life as well, um, so that I could, I could see that God was something that I couldn't possibly understand in terms of uh, a being so, so vast um, that the human brain can't comprehend it. But I did understand that God is in everything. God is in everyone um, to whom I speak. God is in everyone that, that speaks to me. Um, God is in every breath that I take. Um, God is in the water that's coming down from the skies right now. God is everywhere. And I, um, Catherine had a, had a kind of a dark side to her psyche. She, she did not have an easy life um, starting out. Her mother died when she was an infant. Um, she died of childbed fever. And uh, Catherine was raised by her stepmother, Emma Bouvier, and she didn't know that Emma was not her real mother, birth mother, until she was a young teenager. And it really, it, it, was, a, it was a real shock to her. And she started then wondering about, you know, who she was, really. And you can imagine that that would happen to anybody who's, you know, 13, 14 years old, you know, am I really loved? Who am I? And so this other dark side of her began to surface, and I and I realized that I have that too. That that and that's okay. It's not something to hide. You wrestle with it. You just like you wrestle with whether you believe in God or whether where is God in the world when we are all in travail? Um, where is God? in the genocide of the Native American peoples? Where is God in the Holocaust? Where is, where is God in all of this? And I began to, I began to have a feeling of God weeping whenever we do horrible things one to another. I mean, God must be weeping this very second in Aleppo. Um, so, so that's what I learned. Um, I, I kind of entered into a deeper spiritual um, place in my own psyche. Has that affected your writing? Um, yes, I think it. I think it has. I think it. it, um, it if you read scripture, 
um, you it, it's it's the language that we all kind of in, inherently know, um, and uh, so yes, I, I I think it is that language that kind of bubbles up in and and it, it also these are ancient stories. So if we look at what we Christians call the Old Testament, which is is the Jewish Testament, um, then those stories are our stories. And, and I think that's just something that we all understand. I, um, my son-in-law is Jewish, and I have spent uh, Passover with them and his family, whom I love, and they always ask me to read, which is very kind. Um, and and I and then I say, yeah, but we just read this at church, and that to me is a marvel. That here we are all exchanging throughout the world our beliefs. We're speaking with Cordelia Biddle, um, author, historian, teacher, professor at Drexel University, here about some of her research into some of her past and relatives, uh, Nicholas Biddle and Catherine uh, Drexel, and how that has influenced her, and obviously it has. And we're going to take another break, a message from Ken, a message from our friends at Kendall down the street, and a little, uh, another little musical break, allow us to catch our breath. And Cordelia, when we come back, I want to, as we begin to move towards the end of the show, just touch base with you about some of your other writings and some of your other activities in your life. Um, if I'm not mistaken from what I've re- researched, uh, you were an actress on a soap opera, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, I was. <laughs> so we'll get back to uh, One Life to Live, a uh, little word from uh, Kendall and I think a little Carol King. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128.
Thank you, Carol King. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rouser for a very gloomy day here, and um, good old days of uh, Carol King and James Taylor. That's a live album from the Troubadour, and they were in town actually many years, several years ago. A great concert at the Wells Fargo Center, and uh, it was good to go to a concert and see um, eighteen thousand people who kind of look like my generation. <laughs> So uh, it was very heartening. Um, music is still there. All of our kids are listening to it, too. Cordelia Biddle, um, as a Renaissance woman, which I think is a really good description from your from your life, um, One Life to Live. Rumor has it yes. that's, a, that's a soap opera. Or what, is that still on the air? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I never watch television. That's, <laughs> I, that's great. I, 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 no, that's great. That's great. That's great. That's great. So you were an actress on really one of the one of the more famous soaps in America. I had a tiny, tiny, tiny part. I was the um, maid to the Wicked Witch of the show, and um, I was the one who, on Friday afternoon, brought in the police or some some a terrible thing had happened. She had to sell her jewelry, so I was bringing in somebody to 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 estimate the value of the jewelry, I was the person that got you to turn back in on Monday. So what was that like? How did, first of all, how did you get that gig? Um, this is so embarrassing. Oh, I okay. got it because, no, it's it's just a silly story. I got it because my grandma, I had to curtsy every time I saw my grandmother. Really? And um, the, she, was, she was very old-fashioned. And... Um, so I auditioned for this part, and when I finished my few lines, I curtsied, and because I thought, well, that's what a maid in a soap opera would do. And they said, "Who was that?" And I said, uh, "A curtsy." And they said, "Oh, do it again. That was great." So that became my shtick. I curtsied. Wow. And so I would just taught by my grandmother. This was not Lee Strasberg. This wasn't how to act and this and you know scream and howl at the fates or anything like that. This was a curtsy. So they tarted me up in this uniform that no maid should ever have to wear. Um, it was pinched in waist and very high heels and jewelry and it was ridiculous. Um, but that's who I was. I was Emma, the loyal maid. Have you ever? Did you ever see any of the episodes that you were in? I I had taped them, and I had a babysitter at the time who saw the tape, and she wanted to tape something else and used it because I I I had taped all of my entrances and exits because I was just bobbing up and down the whole time, and I thought it was very funny. So I don't don't have any copies of that. Wow, that's what I did. So and 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 you do you do not stay home and watch soaps during the day now. No, I didn't. I was actually writing my first. I had time. I had to be at the studio all day when I was working. Right. And uh, so I had, but I had time because I had such a tiny part. So I started to write my first novel. And um, that's what I did while I was waiting to go on and, you know, bring in the police or whatever <laughs> I was supposed to be doing. Who is Martha Beale? Um, Martha Beale is my heroine, my protagonist in four books, a series of novels that uh, take place in Philadelphia in the early Victorian era in Philadelphia. And um, she is a woman of great wealth and 
um, tries to buck the system. Um, she's uh, an iconoclast at the time. I found her name. Uh, Martha has always the story of Martha and Mary, um, the sitting at Jesus' feet has always fascinated me. Mary's the one who doesn't do any work, and Martha is the is the one out there cooking and sewing and cleaning and complains about that. And I always felt a bit of a Martha in my own life, so I named her Martha. And the Beal I got in uh, St. Peter's Churchyard, that's where I get a lot of my names. Hmm. Um, I, I took Dickens to heart when he said he, he got his names from churchyards. So um, that's what I did, and uh, I really became fascinated by the period because there was such a chasm between wealth and poverty, which is still there. And I wanted readers to understand this chasm and what it was to fall completely between the cracks. So here's this woman of wealth, and and there's there's always a crime, and she's trying to help solve the crime and bring justice um, to the world. So um, those those have been wonderful to write. I. I have loved doing the research. I love letting myself go free. And really, um, I think of it as taking dictation from Martha. She tells me what she wants to do and say, and uh, I just write it down. So there are four, four, four Martha Beale novels? Yes. And they're available through Amazon or and, and books? Yeah, they're, they're, they're in the libraries. They're no longer in print. I don't think. Oh, some of them may be on Kindle. I, mm-hmm. I don't pay much attention. I'm sorry to say, I'm really a bad businesswoman. No, I understand. That's okay. That's so. You know, <laughs> I can relate. But it's interesting though that you mentioned. So you have the three people. You know, we've kind of like talked about a little bit. Um, even the maid, I guess, if you want to look at it, uh, Nicholas and and um, Catherine and your novel hero Martha. You all you kind of like describe each one of them in, in sort of like ways of being an iconoclast or, or swimming mm-hmm. against the stream, going against the system. What what, mm-hmm. what what is it about that personality trait that attracts you? You see yourself as that? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I, w- I was uh, raised to be, uh, I think, a socialite. Um, I'm not. Uh, Yes, I do. I'm, I'm not as, as strong as Catherine, nor as strong as Nicholas Biddle, but um, I see really everything I do as, as going against what's expected. Um, when I was, I was in, I went to a girls' boarding school in Connecticut as a kid, or as a teenager, and we had to attend church every Sunday, and I was going through my rebellious, I don't want to go to church, I don't believe in any of this nonsense right. phase. And um, the the preacher got up, and he decided to uh, preach against black people moving into the town of Farmington, Connecticut. That's where the school was. And he stood up there in the pulpit and said, we can't allow this to happen because they will paint their houses chartreuse. 
And I was up and on my feet and out of that church before he had finished the word chartreuse. What year was and, this? What year was this? Uh, 65. Wow. So and, at, the, at the height of the civil rights movement, he's he's doing this? Can you imagine that? Not too I smart. Was, not too smart of a guy. <laughs> I was so angry. I, I still, thinking back on it, I get angry all over again. The headmaster, however, was on his feet after me running down the hill and uh, was mortified that I would behave this way and, and I was supposed to be a, a good young lady and right. prim and proper. And so he wrote Vassar College, where I had been accepted, and said that they should consider rescinding my um, acceptance because I was a potential vote for communism. Was this your Catherine Drexel uh, moment? That was. <laughs> I have taken that with such pride through my life. I thought, yes, okay, I can do that. Well, no, you know, the, it's it's amazing talking again about history, about those days of the 60s and, and the early 70s, and uh, trying to explain this to our own children uh, and what it was like in every single day. And, you know, you, you never had to go very far to find a cause because it was right there in front of you every single day, right, right in front of you. You didn't have to even just, it was there. And, um, let me ask you before we start running out of time that you, you have this sense of history. Um, you certainly through your DNA, you, you, you span the entire history of the United States of America. You're writing, you've studied, you've written about people who, you know, helped shape in many ways the country, uh, and much of the society. So let me fast forward and, and so almost to go back to what we started about 40 minutes ago about learning history and what history teaches us. Given now it's it's uh, almost December 1st, it's the end of November, the election's over, we're now in the, the sort of like uh, the reassessment process. How do you assess right now where we are as a country in the post-election um you've, you've, you have a historical perspective that very few people have. Uh, what's your sense? Oh, I, I'm, I'm still in mourning for what we've done to ourselves. Um, but you've looked at history, and we've been through situations and periods in history of, of, of great uh, social upheaval and change politically, socially, economically. You know, I remember the, the night sitting in with the friends of mine in the western part of Cincinnati. We're all seminary students in 68 watching the Nixon-Humphrey returns, and we're all saying, oh, my God, you know. And, and yet America, America has survived, and, um, to, to, and you have a historical well, perspective. Well, interestingly, um, in the election of 1824, uh, Thomas Jefferson was dead set against Andrew Jackson becoming president. He didn't win that year, but he won in 28. But Jefferson warned people that he was the most dangerous man he knew because he, his temper was uncontrolled and that he was totally unfit for public office of that kind. And, and yet Jackson became president, and uh, he, he brought in the kind of the, the populist, vote. Um, he brought in a new kind of self-made 
I-can-do-it man who was going to change everything and did. And the country changed, whether you thought he was a good president or not. He inspired a lot of people who then became that so that the whole populism became an important part of how we lived our lives as a nation. And so I'm hopeful we will keep writing ourselves um, in the midst of, of turmoil. I, I see right now that this is where we're engendering a lot of hatred between peoples, which is awful. Um, but that's always been there. It's mm-hmm. simply, uh, and do, are we ever going to get rid of it? I, I, I'm now beginning to think we won't. I think we, we can all say that the past was better, but really it, it wasn't. Um, but how do we, how do we then learn and go forward? How do we, how do I keep writing ourselves? Maybe it's simply that people say, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to be evil people. We want to be good people. How do we go about doing that? Do you see How a parallel? Cordelia, do you see a parallel between um, Andrew Jackson and that era and today? I do. I do. He, there was a tremendous amount of rage um, engendered among the, the people who thought they were have-nots toward the haves. Um, so deep mistrust and division and schism in the country. Um, and, and he, he was a very clever politician and he was able to ride that wave. Um, and, and then unfortunately, once he killed the central bank that created a terrible financial upheaval in, in 1837 that put so many people out of work and into dire poverty. So so then he was criticized for having gone that far. So it was another, you know, sort of a, a groundswell coming back in the other direction. So that was a that was also a period of, of great economic uncertainty, correct? Trem, tremendous. I mean, banks were folding right and left. If you read the newspapers at the time, it was just one one bank after another because there was no central bank, so there was no there was no, nothing to support the local banks, um, and currency dried up, and it didn't exist, and people started hoarding, and um, there were runs on banks, and it, it was a disaster. Yeah, I, I, it's it's absolutely fascinating, you know, to talk about history, and I really appreciate because we're just about out of time. I really appreciate your just ability to just step back and reflect and bring the past into the present in such a dramatic way because the themes that you're talking about of the people you're researching about the the going against the stream and 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 really being somewhat iconoclastic and yet paralleling the ongoing societal rift between as you as you've put it uh, this morning those uh, on the elite those who have and versus those who have not and and even your your novel protagonist uh, functioning in that attempt to bridge that gap um, the historical parallels, the parallels, and how it's influenced your own life—it's—it's uh, it's very, it's very interesting and certainly complex. And um, I guess the lesson that I would hope people would take from this conversation today is: uh, take a look at history, because history is a great teacher. And we've been there; we've all been there before. And again, if we don't understand it, and if we don't learn from it, 
we are doomed to repeat it. So Cordelia Biddle, um, Renaissance woman, author, historian, teacher, Drexel University, uh, and for that little snippet of time, uh, the um, the precocious maid in one life to live. I guess we can call it like that. <laughs> Listen, thank you very, very much for being uh, with us here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Continued success. Uh, continue Thanks. good luck. Good luck with the writing, and and we'll look forward to Nick. When do you think the Nicholas Biddle book will be out? In about a year, you say? I, uh, I probably I'll be finished in a year. Although I'm going great guns right this minute, but um, well, good luck, and, and let us know when it comes out. To all of you, thank you very much for joining us here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. See you next week. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you, thank you, Cordelia. Thank you, Richard. Bye bye. So bye bye.